Hello, Professor Alec Hilton, and thank you for taking the time to talk uh, with VOA about your new book. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for your interest. So you wrote a book about the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and you named the book The Justice Facade. Uh, what do you mean by that? In terms of specifically what the title means, uh, it's meant uh, if you look at a facade, it's an exterior. Uh, and the book argues that the idea that somehow, uh, as they often frame it, the international community can deliver justice to Cambodians, uh, it's like a facade that obscures all of the complex histories that lie behind the tribunal, as well as the sets of meanings uh, that people have and the ways in which they interpret what's going on. Uh, so the book argues that it's necessary to step behind this facade and understand how everyday uh, Cambodians and people uh, understand what's going on uh, in this juridical process. So my original intent had been to uh, try and talk to people and understand how uh, Cambodians uh, on the ground, including uh, Cambodians living in rural villages, understood uh, this thing that's often called international justice. Uh, it's often framed uh, with the term transitional justice, which is linked uh, to a series of objectives, uh, such as delivering uh, justice, peace, reconciliation, uh, as well as things like democratization. Um, so from the very beginning, even before I wrote Manor Monster, I had in mind uh, the book that became The Justice Facade. Are you trying to argue that the Cameroon people have a different interpretations of the concepts of, of um, justice? than the yeah. international community. Yeah, no, that's a very very good question. Uh, so the book looks a lot at the sets of Buddhist understandings that mediate uh, the experience of people who, are, for example, are testifying uh, and what, it's, what the tribunal means to them. So to give you one quick example, um, you know, in the courtroom, people say, well, you know, I would ask people, why did you testify? What did it mean to you? And people will often say, well, you know, I want justice, and that's certainly uh, true. Um, but uh, there's another set of beliefs that's occluded uh, if you have uh, just the word justice in English. Uh, and this often uh, is understood in Buddhist terms uh, in Cambodia. So, for example, some civil parties uh, I spoke to and other Cambodians said that it wasn't just that they wanted justice, but they wanted justice return for the spirits of the dead, and they actually viewed their act of giving testimony, both it was for themselves, but also for their lost loved ones, uh, and also to help, for example, with their rebirth. Uh, there's stories as well of uh, different civil parties, for example, who said that the spirits of the dead were actually circulating in the courtroom. Uh, there was even one uh, one person who held up a picture of his uh, brother who had been killed at S21 tool slaying and said, brother, you're here with me in this courtroom. I'm doing this for you. Uh, and while he was holding up this picture. So those sets of understandings uh, about, you know, what on the very superficial level is called justice, what this means on the local level is much more complex and often diverges strongly uh, from notions of international justice, uh, international transitional justice. Can you clarify again uh, the, the concept of justice in the Buddhist perspective? How is it different from uh, the international context? Sure, sure. No, that that's a good question. So, uh, you know, one so and one way to think about it, and again, the, neither of these are are completely singular things, uh, but is through the notion of karma, for example, that actions in the past condition what comes in the future. 
so this means if you talk to uh, some Cambodians, for example, some people I spoke with when asked if there was a need for a tribunal, some people said no. In fact, the people who had done bad deeds, Khmer Rouge leaders, would be punished uh, in a future life. Uh, another way people sometimes spoke about it was in terms of responsibility, that in fact what had happened to even the victims was also something that was linked to past acts. Um, I spoke to the survivor of uh, S-21 uh, who said, uh, you know, in the past I had done, I must have done things and had been tied in malice with Doik, the head of S-21, and that influenced the situation that we had uh, that took place under the Khmer Rouge. Um, and again, in terms of uh, rebirth, for example, and the transferring of merit to the dead to help out with rebirth, the notion of going to the court, it was done so that merit could be transferred to the spirits of the dead so that it would improve, uh, you know, if they were suspended between realms, it would improve their chances to be reborn and to be better, reborn in a better place. Can I say that uh, what you're trying to say is like uh, the people believe that the, the, the court actually give good deed to the dead spirit? Absolutely. It's like a giant bunk skull. Oh, wow. <laughs> some people, again, you can't generalize with everyone, but effectively, that's what some people, how they view it. So there are multiple things that court does, but one of them is like a giant ritual bunk skull ceremony uh, where merit's being transferred to the dead. Uh, so many people talk to me about this sort of transfer. Um, and I also, a lot of the book uh, details the efforts of Cambodian non-governmental uh, organizations as well as the court itself to try and translate this thing that's called global justice uh, into terms that people would understand. Uh, some of the, you know, I talked about these stories in the book. Some of the people I spoke with who were engaged in this activity were very aware that this was a way they could get people to understand and engage with the tribunal. Uh, and people very directly, some people that I spoke with would make this analogy with the court and transferring uh, merit to the spirits of the dead. How did the Cambodian people feel about uh, the global justice? And do they think that their Buddhist versions of justice has been served by the court? Yeah, you know, that that's a complicated question and one I would never myself, uh, you know, want to answer since, you know, this is the this is what it means to Cambodians and they can best speak for themselves. The people I spoke with, uh, you know, so who are we talking about? If we're talking about, uh, you know, mid-level former Khmer Rouge living in Anlong Vang or Bailin or some other area like that, many of them say they, you know, they don't think there's any need at all for a tribunal. Not everyone, but, you know, a number of people say that. Uh, there are other people who are uh, older, uh, grandmothers, for example, uh, who are EHE, who are at the, are at the Watt. Uh, if you ask them, for example, some of them might say, well, there's no need for a tribunal because, you know, these people will be reborn. We need to let go of our attachments. Uh, karma will deliver justice in the end to them. Uh, there are other people uh, who very much want uh, justice, uh, some sort of uh, accountability for things that have happened in the past. And, you know, those sorts of understandings begin to converge with notions of international justice. But almost everyone I spoke with, in some sense, discussed the spirits of the dead. 
Rick Simbotten, the former head of the public affairs section, who was, uh, you know, an incredible person uh, and devised a program to bring uh, with his colleagues to bring in Cambodians from all over the country to the court. Uh, you know, he himself uh, told me once that his nickname was a spokesperson for the ghost of the dead. Uh, he himself had lost family members and very much viewed uh, his participation uh, in some sense linked to the deaths of the spirits of his uh, family members who uh, were still with him, who still, their spirits still circulated. So he, so again, the official spokesperson for the court viewed the tribunal uh, in this manner, as well as understanding uh, Western concepts of international justice. He saw both dimensions to the court. Personally, how would you rate the performance of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal? Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to pass judgment um, because there are so many different opinions, so I would not want to represent other people uh, from the outside. Uh, you know, if you just look at the accomplishments of the tribunal, uh, you know, there's been two, basically two trials that have gone forth and have rendered uh, a verdict, a judgment uh, that's been upheld. Uh, you know, we're in the third trial, case 2.2, which includes the important charge of genocide. Um, and I actually testified as an expert witness uh, in case 2.2. Uh, that one's nearing a conclusion, and a verdict is expected sometime this year. Uh, justice, as I've learned, uh, you know, from the very start, when I started my project, I was an expert in legal anthropology. I've learned a great deal. One of my first lessons was justice moves slowly, and that's certainly been the case uh, in this tribunal. Uh, there's no doubt that there are a number of shortcomings uh, in terms of the politicization of the, of the tribunal, uh, in terms of corruption allegations that have gone on, in terms of of critiques of the court for not moving forward uh, beyond the initial five uh, suspects. And, uh, you know, that's people tend to say, though there's no official confirmation, that the tribunal likely uh, will shut down after case 2.2. Um, in, the, in those sense, I think, you know, those are shortcomings of the court, but it's also had accomplishments. Uh, you know, international justice rarely leaves everyone satisfied, and I know that'll be the case for this court. Why do you think that it didn't, con uh, they didn't continue? Well, the reasons that are given is uh, because there's no political will uh, that uh, Hun Sen, uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen himself, has said on a number of occasions uh, that this will be it. will be the initial five. There's a public divergence between what members of the international community who negotiated the agreement said and what uh, Sakon uh, and Hun Sen and others involved in the negotiations on the Cambodian Cambodian side said. Uh, so on the Cambodian side, uh, they say that the intention always was just to try a very small number of people uh, and that five is enough, uh, you know, and it's necessary for Cambodia to move on in the name of uh, peace, reconciliation, and security. Uh, on the international side, uh, there are claims that that number, that was never the number that was envisioned, that in fact, you know, as many as a dozen, maybe 18 or more uh, people would be tried. Uh, you know, what would be a night? So, again, there are two different opinions about this. But in the end, if the Cambodian government doesn't want the tribunal uh, to stay in operation, if it doesn't want more cases, uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, so that seems to be where we are, where it seems very unlikely that the tribunal will continue. Uh, you know, 
what would be an ideal situation. Uh, you know, I think in the tradition of Cambodian compromise, uh, it'd be nice if maybe they at least had one more case. Uh, perhaps Da'an, uh, who is on trial, seems like someone who would be uh, certainly there's a lot of evidence, uh, and he is alleged to have done many things that harm people, uh, including in Region 41, where I did my research as a graduate student. Uh, so I, I, you know, for me, at least one more trial, maybe two, finish the cases that are uh, that are uh, proceeding very, very slowly forward uh, would be a good outcome. But, you know, if I were betting my money, I would bet that, uh, that after case 2.2 finishes, that will be it. Uh, do you have any other important issue or point you want to add about your books or about any issue we just discussed earlier? Uh, well, I think there are many, many issues, right? So we could talk a, a very, very long time. Um, you know, I might just add one, one small thing about the what maybe ultimately the good that a court does uh, is it creates uh, in sense a sense of possibility for people. And this is sort of where I end. If we move away from the justice facade ideals that somehow everything miraculously will be transformed uh, through the tribunal and have more modest goals, uh, you can look at a tribunal as creating a set of possibilities. It may have different sorts of meanings to different people. For some, it may be achieving justice for the spirits of the dead, transferring uh, merit uh, to the dead so that they can be reborn in a better place. Uh, for others, it may just be something that contributes to their imagination, their understanding of the possibilities that exist for how things might be otherwise. Uh, so again, you know, that's something that people often don't talk about in terms of tribunals, but I think it's something that's important to take notice about. But you can't notice that until you step behind the justice facade. Last question. What made you interested in Cambodian writing about Cambodia? Ah, well, yeah, that goes back in time. As an anthropologist, I was uh, interested in Buddhism, and originally I was going to go, uh, I was interested in both Tibet and Cambodia. Uh, but at the time when I was about to do research in the early 1990s, it was impossible to get into Tibet. Uh, Cambodia was opening up, uh, and so I went to Cambodia first in 1992 as a graduate student, and I lived there for several months, and that uh, laid forth the path that would lead me to uh, you know, in many ways view Cambodia as a second home. So, thank you, Professor Hinton. Um, um, have a nice day. Yeah, and thank you very much. Congratulations on your book. Uh, the title is The Justice Facade, Trials of Transition of Cambodia. That's right, and I hope it's one day translated into Khmer.